HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece was brought to you by Roberta's, robertaspizza.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. Last month, Hurricane Florence walloped parts of North Carolina. According to the Weather Channel, it was the wettest tropical storm to ever hit the Tar Heel State. So how did the restaurant industry respond? Some helped FEMA weather the storm, while others got to work feeding people on the ground. We just walked in and said, we know how to cook, what can we do? They said, I need you guys to just cook 150 pork loins, and we were just like, uh, okay. (laughs) Now the attention needs to be on Florence's long-term effect on North Carolina's farming community. The general mood of farmers is one of certainly resilience and almost feels like it's the normal course of business to just get hit by a gigantic hurricane and need to just keep on going. So tune in to this week's Meet and Three on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey guys, it's Tuesday, October 16th. I'm Jimmy Carboni, the host of Beer Sessions Radio. And this is a special week. It's uh, New York Rye Week in uh, New York City. But we're, we're going to be talking a little bit about spirits and meads and uh, mixing cocktails today in, in kind of honor of New York Rye Week. And we're not doing rye whiskeys. You got it. <laughs> but it, this is a good chance to really talk about the, the diversity and so much progress that's happened in New York State in terms of farm licenses and, and ciders and, and whiskeys and beer and, and meads. And uh, our, our very special guests I've been waiting to have on for a while, Raphael Lyon, Enlightenment Mead, no, Wine Meadery. You're going to tell me. Now, you're going to repeat it for me, and I'm not going to screw up. Enlightenment Wines Meadery. <laughs> it used to just be Enlightenment Wines, but all we made was mead, so... It got, we felt like we needed to clarify. And we get your friend uh, Patrick from Duke's Liquor Box in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. That, yep, that's correct. Thank you for inviting me here. Yeah. So this is really your show. But So again, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, <clears throat> New York State licenses and, and uh, you know, what's changed and, and, you know, how you're able to really operate. And then it also applies to independent liquor stores. And we'll talk about meads and the history of meads and some other products. So uh, let's get started. So... 
you know, I think we all first met around 2009. Mm-hmm. So give us a backstory on, on opening uh, a meadery. Well, yeah, that's, that's true. So uh, in 2009, I got a license for a farm winery. And in New York, that basically means that in exchange uh, for using uh, New York State ingredients, 100% New York State ingredients, you get certain privileges as a wine producer. And they mostly mean that you can uh, sell directly to people like you with restaurant, things like that. So that's nice if you're just starting out and you want to uh, kind of, you know, make a small amount and sell directly to the public. At, at the time, I was doing almost entirely subscription-based meadery. So um, they, if you were in Napa, they'd call it like a cult winery. Um, and to, cl- to be clear, I think, because uh, we'll use this word meadery and winery sort of interchangeably, and, and I think that can be confusing for people. But essentially, mead is honey wine. It's a kind of wine, just like there's uh, rice wine called sake and there's barley wine and there's fruit wines mead is honey wine so that would mean that um, it's not a grape wine that you add honey to it's a fermented beverage made out of honey and usually water or fruit juice or honey and herbs and there's one i I was doing a little research today there's a new yorker article where basically it says rather than like the dungeon and dragon style (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know when we think of mead yours is more like floral and dry yeah it's it's i mean part of the the challenge and also the kind of interesting thing about uh, making meat is that uh, for something that uh, people haven't really tried often, they, they have a lot of ideas about it, right? So, you know, if I tell you I'm going to go to the wine store and buy a wine, you're, you kind of have some idea. It's like, well, it's going to be red, maybe, and made out of grapes. Um, but you understand that there's sweet wines and there's crappy wines that, you know, cost, you know, two buck chuck and there's, uh, and there's really fine wines. There's some and, ma- more mass-produced meads that yeah, are more, more right. sweet. Right, and, and, and it's, it's true for mead, too. So um, if you're making meads, there's a whole world of very inexpensive, you know, sweet, carbonated stuff. And it's, you know, I don't like it. Um, and then there's, on the other side of the spectrum, is people like us who, you know, we use old world wine techniques and we're making things in barrels and it takes years and you age it. And, uh, you know, in our case, we're also using spontaneous fermentation. So it's wild yeast. Um, we're not using sulfites. We don't filter. So in a lot of ways, um, the meads that we're making, I, I, they are a lot more like the way that mead probably would have been made for 10,000 years. Um, and, you know, you have to try it, I think, to understand it. But um, I think if you haven't had a mead before and you're kind of trying to understand what it is, you might think of like a, some kind of white wine sort of strength. Um, and in the case of our table meads, you know, the kind of thing you'd have a glass of, you know, maybe four or five ounces, like a wine glass. But also the cool thing about mead is that it's also wrapped up in herbal traditions. So um, if you like vermouths and you like amaros and you like bitters and you like things that you mix cocktails with, a lot of the meads we make are also sort of like that. So we have a dandelion mead. It's basically a digestive. It's very bitter. Uh, we'll do a cherry and botanicals. That's one of my favorites. I brought it. Years. Brought it. Uh, we're releasing the floralia, which is sort of like a late summer mead. That's a uh, lavender, juniper, and marjoram. And again, you wouldn't necessarily drink like a whole glass of that at a meal, but you might have a two ounce pour and sip it. Or you might go over to uh, Patrick's place and buy some kind of fancy gin and, you know, mix it up um, into a cocktail. So about half of our meads are sort of geared towards cocktail world and the other half are kind of um, like a, we do a sparkling pet nap, uh, a little bit more like a table wine. No, that's really interesting. And Why did you choose to make mead instead of a, a cider? 
or another more that's obvious good, Yeah, product? that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, I grew up in upstate New York, and um, I grew up, you know, uh, actually at working at a farm, and, you know, we I packed apples with Jamaicans, you know, as a teenager, and, like, you know, it was really, like, we're surrounded by apple orchards there. And I definitely made cider. We still make a cider for Honey as our tasting room. Um, but I just didn't feel like cider had the range, the creative range that mead does. Uh, there's really just an enormous palette to work with because in the case of cider, you're, you're basically, you, you have your varietal apples that you can work with, which are interesting, um, and then sort of your production techniques, which, you know, whether or not you're doing wild or not. And you can kind of push it around. You, there's certainly some range to cider. Um, but mead is like, You've got cherries, you've got elderberries, you've got black currants, then you've got all the herbs that grow, you've got yarrow, and you've got fur, and, you know, there's just all these wild, awesome things that you can work with, and then I'm, I'm also a forager, so it's fun for me to go out and pick wild juniper or rose hips or something like that and incorporate them into the mead, and it just felt like a little bit more of a, has more breath, and then also when I started it, it takes up less space because ciders maybe... You know, your cider is going to be around 6% alcohol usually. Um, and at that kind of alcohol level, you know, it's especially if you're doing a natural process, it's sort of asking a turn of vinegar. Um, you got to be a little bit more sterile, a little more careful. It doesn't necessarily age as well. Uh, when you move up to about a 12% kind of table wine strength product, then, uh, you know, basically it sterilizes itself. Not maybe, you know, it sanitizes itself, I guess is the right word. Uh, once it's wine, so it doesn't have to be so sterile. Um, it gets better as it gets older uh, if, you, if, if it's made well, and that's nice too. You know, it takes some of the pressure off of moving it really fast. Uh, so there's a lot of things. Also, we have great honey here in New York. We've got great apples and great cherries, and we have all this great fruit. And I kind of wanted to work with everything. Let, let's let's taste through your, your products. You know, think of the progression you're going to do with us and Patrick. Okay. Um, so one thing I love about Raphael, everyone around him is is a quality person. So I, when we were booking the show, we we wanted someone that that the retailer or bar bar owner that rep, represented his products. So how did you meet uh, Raphael, and what are some of his products that you sell at Duke's <clears throat> Liquor Box? Because you're like a real specialty destination liquor store. We are. Thank you. Um, well. Right in Greenpoint, right? In in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, yeah, that's right. Uh, I should say, Raphael introduced himself to me uh, (laughs) five or so years ago, I think, when we had just barely opened our shop, and um, he walked in the door and said, I'm Raphael, and I make mead. Would you like to try some? And I said, sure. And he said, I'll be right back. And he went to his car, and he came back with like an assortment of, of probably eight different varieties of mead. And my experience with mead at the time was minuscule at best and he pulled out all these different varieties and started rattling off what they were and we started tasting through some of them and he says I I should let you know that none of these are for sale you can't buy any of this (laughs) and I said okay what what can I buy here and he said well maybe this one okay maybe this one too and we went through a few more and and, uh, I just said I'll, I'll take whatever you know, whatever we can get our hands on. And uh, that was my first experience with with the, uh, the broad of, uh, category of meat, I should say, um, when before that I thought it was just fermented honey, and uh, it's way more than that. Um, and we started working with it back when, I guess, it was the Floralia, the Dandelion, um, 
I don't remember if there was a sparkling one back should then. Should we taste not. the floralia now? Um, we should do the sparkling one first the sparkling because first. it's the lightest. Yeah. Yeah. And then how, how do you sell them? This is it's a category. As I said, some people think Dungeons and Dragons when you hear mead. I know that what Raphael makes is something very different. Sure. But, but how else do you describe this product? Well, we, our, our first of all, when you when you if you've never been to our shop before, it. it it, unfortunately, it can be a little bit intimidating because we don't we don't have any name brands that step out right away and are recognizable. Uh, but we can always bring something to the table that's within a category of anything someone asks for. Usually, so when when uh, the, the the way it, it works out is either maybe one out of a hundred people that walk through our door ask us for mead, and the rest don't really know what it is, or or they're they're led to it based on on. If they come in looking for a, a, a something, something unique or interesting, but like Raphael mentioned, um, a lot of these fit very well within somewhere of the Vermouth Amaro modifier category. So, uh, for example, there's a product called Dagger, which I think is still available or, or yeah. maybe not. But um, I love that product with mezcal. Uh, oh, cool, we we yeah. do that a lot. So when when somebody's adventurous and looking into mezcal and looking at something something to do with it that's different, we 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 always bring up the dagger and talk about it that way. Um, vermouth. That's really or, cool that you've you've matched one of his. I call them mixers <laughs> with yeah. uh, with a specific spirit like mezcal. Yeah, I, you kind of need to. I mean, we have to do it at the cocktail bar. I mean, our, my partner Arlie usually does that, or the staff. But yeah, I mean, it's you know just because something might be. Um, good for mixing doesn't mean it's good for mixing with everything and True. and finding that right level of you know relationship is really important so dagger is super complicated it's, it's a cherry mead it's got fur in it and um hemlock and hemlock so these are like big kind of christmas nose smells and then you know yarrow it's quite bitter it's just a lot going on so you know you need to meet that complexity with something else often like as complex so, and it has to fit like a puzzle you know um, yeah, and and I think and, and they go really well together. I think a little yeah, smoky mezcal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That sounds good already. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And and I, I would say like also we you know once we get to know our clients and and know that kind of what they're getting into, we take that opportunity to introduce something like, uh, you know like like the floralia or the or the sparkling or um or the so fade. We just poured the sparkling. Mm-hmm. So l- let's talk us through that, Rafael. Okay, so this is called Raise the Roof. It's really uh, good. Um, it is something I made by accident once and then spent the, you know, the following years trying to reproduce it, but it's That a- happens a lot to you, doesn't <laughs> it? Cuz I remember I was one of your first customers as <laughs> yeah, well way yeah, back at Jamie's number 43 and I remember coming in we we bought Carboys from you and oh, yeah. real experimental stuff. Yeah. We, well, this is uh, you know, now we're making, you know, I made 500 gallons of this. So the level of experimentation has to be sort of dialed in, but you don't want to, but it's very hard to make this. This is, I'm very proud of this because it's very hard to make. And the reason it's hard is because it's two living organisms. You've got a lacto, uh, bacillus, which is not like you, you've got a sour beer here. It's a, I can tell what, what that organism is. It's a, the, these sours that are used in beers are, they're usually like one strain they're very lemony. They have a kind of single note, and they're a little bit boring. Uh, so we developed our own sort of lactose strain for this. So, and you know, it's got a big like kind of milk nose. It smells like ice cream, and that's co- that's living in the honey, eating the honey, and doing what it's doing, producing lactic acid. At the same time that the yeast is like kind of waking up from the honey, the thousands of different kinds of yeast, and they're all sort of developing and sort of fighting it out, and it's all happening at once. It's like a whole ecosystem. 
and that has to ferment out to be dry, right? Because you have to get the right amount of residual sugar in there so that we can bottle it. And it continues to ferment in the bottle and it hopefully produces enough gas to produce sparkling something. And, you know, we got, we got it pretty close. I mean, uh, it could be a little more bubbly, but um, I really like it. And, um, yeah, we, I mean, we're killing this at the bar. Uh, it, so, it, you know, it's, pretty, it's sour, but it's not super sour. It's, it should be pretty balanced, I think. Um, and it's alive, you know, as you're, you're drinking it's, a living It's right thing. on. I mean, yeah. also, this, I feel like with all of your, even your table meads, mm-hmm. they also make good mixers. Don't you think so, Patrick? I would say so as well. Um, I mean, even this, though, is one of my favorite sparkling ones I think you've mm-hmm. ever made. I, I, I agree it's really special. Um, but uh, you can I, use this for a topper. I, yeah. As a topper, but I would also argue you could use this as the base and modify it slightly by, by adding oh, something as a spritz yeah. into it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and keeping this as your uh, – as, as the – as the backbone, Patrick. Let's talk through that. So you've got you've got uh, enlightenment, uh, sparkling. Is it that? It's called uh, raise the roof. Is the raise the, the roof. name of the yeah. bottle? Yeah, sparkling. And you're going to use it as a base. And then what would you top it with? I would add a like a, a light bitter uh, liqueur into mm-hmm. it. You yeah, know, just it's like a spritz. Think of it as the same way. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can and you can play with the color. It's so it's so the color's so light too. The color is really light. Yeah, yeah. But I, I would I would treat it like a spritz. That's mm-hmm. kind of what I would do with that. And I'd be a little more selective with um, with uh, the aperitif or, or or bitter liqueur that I would add to it. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, we should mention both. by the way that uh, we've invited uh, Patrick to come to our tasting room, which is called Honey's, which is off the Jefferson L, and he'll be there on. Thursday, correct. As a guest bartender, so he's going to play around this week. Yeah, this week. Yep. So okay. uh, the day after tomorrow. Yeah. So if you want to come and try this stuff out, and you live in New York, if you're listening live. Yeah. Yeah. Just look up Enlightenment Wines, and you'll find us. And then, um, or look up Honey's Brooklyn, and uh, yeah, he'll be there in the in the evening. You know what time? Sure. I think um, probably most of the evening. But okay. I think uh, I think definitely between seven and nine. Okay. Cool. Is the and are yeah. there are there? I'm, that's what I was going to get to. Is uh, you know. Uh, you must have a few other uh, ideas in mind that you're going to serve that night. There are, and in fact, we're going to we're going to discuss a little bit of that further. A few of them, I think, we're going to play around with uh, beforehand. But I think there's uh, there's there's definitely some some staple ones that work really well that we'll go through with. Yeah, I'm excited. I mean, I hope uh, you know we haven't made a cocktail for this year's Floralia. So, um, which you don't probably even have yet, right? Because we haven't started selling it quite. This one. No, I, um, well, I mean, Let, we, we've let's always, pop that we've always, so the Floralia, we, yeah, we've always pop had that. It. So this, this one I've made, uh, several years in a row and, um, when was this batch released? This just came out. I mean, oh, we just okay. bottled this, uh, just listening to it, um, that we just bottled this. So because That's brilliant. you said you're listening to it, what are you listening for? <laughs> I want to make sure it's not carbonating, begin <laughs> 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 blowing up in people's faces because uh, we don't sulfite these, so they have to be bone dry. And if you and at that level of sugar, you know, if they start refermenting in the bottle, you get problems. So you want to make sure that when you open it, it's not fizzing too much or anything Let, like that. Let's pour that out, and we're going to take a short break. We'll be okay. Back in a minute on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Stand by my head to you. 
Brandon Boyd, co-owner of Roberta's, a super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. Thank you, Brandon Hoy. All right, Roberta's Pizza. We're back here in Bushwick. Thanks so much for having us. Um, it's our ninth year on uh, Beer Sessions Radio, and uh, it's a great place to come. I want to give a shout-out again. It's New York Rye Week, if you're listening live. A lot of cool things happening, especially at New York Distilling in uh, Williamsburg and um, Van Brunt Stillhouse in Red Hook. So just check those out online. But because it's New York uh, Rye Week, we kind of got inspired thinking more about other uh, spirits and mixers and, and, and New York uh, products that have benefited from you know, some of the farm winery, farm brewery uh, licenses. And one of them is uh, uh, Raphael Lyon and Enlightenment Wines Meadery. Yes. Which also has a tasting room, Honeys, in uh, Brooklyn. So we got Patrick from Duke's Liquor Box here, too. So let's keep going. So this is the Floralia. It's, it's your, tell us what that is. It's beautiful. It's floral. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's kind of bitter. Um, so uh, as I was saying, I was, every year it sort of shifts around a little bit because we're using foraged herbs in some cases. And, you know, just the way, you know, the lavender, it's, so it's, it's a mead. It's a dry mead. Uh, we use a very light honey, so it's pretty delicate. Um, lavender, that's what pop, that pops. Yeah, yeah, so then we've got a lavender, juniper, and marjoram. The juniper is, um, it's quite complicated, actually. You can't just throw these things in there. You know, the juniper needs to be heated uh, to release the things. On the other hand, the lavender, if you heat it, it becomes very bitter. So it's, it's quite a complicated infusion. And, um, again, there's just... You know, just like any wine, uh, you know, there's seasonal variations, and some years have particular vintages, and, you know, it just moves around a little bit each year, which I think is great. I think one of the things, especially if you're a beer drinker out there listening to this, and, um, you know, there's certain questions that are going to pop into your head right away that I think that's important um, that I've learned when talking to beer drinkers about mead and really ultimately about wine and then also natural wine, is that... um, you know, we're not necessarily looking... Like, beer has always been made in a factory. Homebrewing is a kind of modern invention. It happened in the post-war era. But beer is old, right? But beer has always been made in factories. You go back to Egypt, there's a factory making beer. It's, people aren't making it in their houses. That's not true for all alcohols. You know, uh, distilling, for example, you know, people drinking a distilled product, it was always a business. No one was doing that in their backyard. Wine, however has always been made, or generally has always been made, at least partially by small landowners and people in their homes. Mead also. Mead you can make in a bucket. You can make a really good mead in a bucket. You can't make a really good beer in a bucket. Beer gets better as you get uh, larger equipment, tip generally. Uh, wine doesn't necessarily. Wine often is better when you make it in smaller batches. And there's reasons for that, and I can get into them, but... Um, the result is that the culture around wine and, and the culture around the kind of mead that I want to make, which is a kind of wine uh, sensibility, is not looking for consistency. It's looking for uh, character, right? So what the goal, for example, of um, a wine is to, you know, often express a place and time or a certain sensation or a certain set of flavors. And you're looking for balance and drinkability and all those kind of things. But it's... It's totally legitimate to make a wine that's very difficult to drink, right? That you might just have little sips of and take your time with and really have to, it's difficult. I don't know if you really want a really difficult beer. You know, it's not really yeah, the goal true. of beer, right? <laughs> yeah. And um, one of the things that has been uh, a challenge for us is that in the world of mead, most commercial mead is made by brewers. 
and they're people with beer backgrounds, and they haven't been able to make the jump of um, understanding that it's really a wine product. Is there... Sorry to yeah. interrupt, but um, you, you've said that twice now, like commercial yeah. mead producers. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm commercial. Familiar. We're commercial, but uh, well, you know, yeah, right. But I mean, is there like, I don't, I don't find there to be competition necessarily. Not that, not that it's not a, a an equal playing sure. space with other meaderies. Mm-hmm. But I mean, is there really like a commercial? Is there a large industry for mead that that I'm just not seeing because yes, there, yeah. is, there is, there is. Yeah. So um, when I mean, there, there's a bigger producer that we've had on the show, Moonlight Meadery. Moonlight, mm-hmm. Moonlight's yeah. big, but even Moonlight's not. But they're not. It's not like the um, Moonlight's still trying to make a kind of wine. What's happened is, is that because there's always this American appetite for like a sparkling alcoholic beer strength something, like whether it be Zima, or whether or not whether or right. not it be like quote mead, which is malt you know, beverage, the, right? You know, it's like. So there's what's coming onto the market right now um, is a lot of like forced carbonated, filtered meads that are made low alcohol, turned around in like two or three months, maybe less, sometimes six weeks. Um, they're cheap. They pump them out. You get them in kegs. They're fast. I don't really like to drink them, but you know if you're already drinking Angry Orchard. And you're okay with that, then uh, it's a pretty easy jump. Yeah, and and I would say also yeah. like going back to my days in college, or a lot of homebrewers back then, the first thing they would make often is a, is a mead, and you'd put it in like a a Grolsch bottle, mm-hmm. so you could, you could cap it off, and it would ferment in the bottle. Mm-hmm. I mean that that's that's the kind of mead that wasn't a lot bad. of people think of. It yeah. probably wasn't bad. It's an easy first homebrew. Yeah, it is, and and in a lot of ways, I mean, I, I make mead and not beer because I'm lazy. You know, like, uh, it's a, it's much simpler. It's much lo- more low-tech. I mean, you can do it with almost very almost no equipment. We don't use, we don't have a, f- we don't really filter anything. You know, we don't need that thing. Uh, you know, we're not adding any chemicals. You know, it's, it's not really sterile. Like, I mean, we're making almost everything in wood barrels, so we rinse them out, but it's not like we have a big sulfite, you know, program or something like that. Um, which you can't say for beer, you know, everything has to be well, That's important. We'll, yeah. we'll get to that, too, because the whole natural wines thing, mm-hmm. that ties over to what you're doing. Yeah. Um, can, can I ask you a question about uh, mead production? Sure, Matt. Sorry, the voice from the booth. <laughs> what? Who Freaking them out in there. I know. I was like, uh... Matt's our engineer who's also worked in breweries, so he's, <laughs> yeah. he's our secret wealth of yeah, knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you mentioned, like, oh, there are no mead factories, I was just curious. No, no, no. I mean, now it, I'm just saying nowadays, yes, of course, we have a factory. No, no, no. Factory, I get it. I get it. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Um, where do, do uh, so the only place that you frequently run into mead mm. is at Ethiopian restaurants. Do you know where they get their mead? Are they making it? Somewhere? I do know actually. Um, so this is a kind of point of, point of contention. So in Ethiopia, so again, this is like back to your Dungeons and Dragons. One of the things I like to mention when people talk about mead, it's like oh, they're thinking about Vikings, and it's like in D and D, which are you know basically more or less fictional characters. You know, most most mead is drunk by black people in Africa, right? It's not like a Northern European, like, only drink. It's actually a worldwide drink. Hey, there's a, there's a really well-known one we, we get from South Africa. Sure, and, yes. The United, yeah. it's um, with yes. an M. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Someone has to Google yeah, that. Yeah. M mead from South Africa. Um, and, yeah, so uh, traditionally mead in Ethiopia is, is, um, is called Tej, and it's made with a plant, like most meads, and it's with a gesher, gesher root. Um, it's a, a stem, actually. It's like a bush. Um, and I bought it, and I've you know, tried to make it. Um, 
you know, mead needs tannin. It needs a bittering agent to help clear the proteins and to preserve it, right? Like the same way beer requires hops or something like that. Uh, the mead that's being sold in most Ethiopian restaurants is not Tej. It's uh, made by someone in New York. They're basically making a quick, uh, sweet, clarified mead that's, you know, um, labeled as having like an Ethiopian recipe. But there's obviously no Tej in it because Tej has a flavor. So I, have, I haven't really seen any Ethiopian mead here in the States uh, made with Gesho root um, properly. So That's a good question, man. Yeah. I, I never would have thought of Ethiopian restaurants as having mead. I guess I haven't oh, been yeah, in a long time. They do, but. you know, and, and actually the, the mead, what's interesting, it's like, um, you know, when I've talked to people from Ethiopia and people have had Ethiopian meads, uh, it's a little bit like asking about after someone's sauerkraut. You know, everybody makes it a little different. Um, you know, there's a huge range of kinds of things that they, they drink, that, depending on where you are. Some of them has sorghum in it. It's more like a beer. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I'd love to go to Ethiopia and try it myself. And this, if you guys yeah. can Google, we'll, we'll bring it, was, it up. Uh, Makana. Makana from South Africa. Is that, they did the chili one as well? There was yeah. somebody, right, mm. had like a, a chili yeah. I think that's it. actually a different one that might be called Ikalika. Yes, yeah, that that's quite good. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. That's but that, I, I think that's saying. the same meter. Anyways, that's mm. one example of a through a really good importer be united that's yeah. available as yeah. well from africa and it's not bad uh but you know i think uh you know for us i think you can kind of tell one of the diff you know because they make a dry mead that's, that's quite nice um i think the fact that we do everything in wood really helps a lot um and i've noticed that it's kind of an advantage also i'm pretty sure i'm not sure one of those different one of those t- of the two south african meaderies innovated this um inline fermentation system which is really crazy and interesting um so it's not like they're actually feeding honey water into a tube where it's being fermented by yeast that are like in alginate balls so they basically live there's like a tube right and honey water comes in and mead trickles out the other side so is that more of an industrial process you're saying it is yeah and then yeah. they've actually taken it on in main mead work so they use the same process i over think there. i think that's what your first question was patrick is you know you're commercial because you have to be your business yeah but there's a difference in kind of more artisanal small batch versus an industrial yeah. processes it's not you know it's not even so much the process it's the speed like, if you went to a winery in California and, they, and they said, like, yeah, we buy the cheapest grapes, we turn this around in three months, and then we sell it to you, no one's going to expect that to be good. Right? You know what I mean? It's, you can't cheat. Like, you just can't cheat. Like, it stuff takes time. It doesn't taste good when it's uh, fast. And one of the things that happens when you don't use some of these clarifying agents and when you don't filter and things like that is you have to wait for the wine to clear, like for the, all the kind of particulates and yeast to drop and things like that. And as a result, you know, our meads take a year. Um, now, I can get them out of the winery faster if I run them through a cross-flow filter. And, you know, I put them in a bottle really fast, and I sulfite them. And, it, and, and also, if, the, if it's, you know, maybe it doesn't taste so good, so I make sure it's pretty sweet when it comes out. You can cover up all your flavors. But when you make a dry mead, there's just no place to hide. So, um, you know, for all those reasons, we just kind of can't cut any corners. And then more about Floralia. Uh, well, I had a question regarding yeah. um, uh, a product that's not here tonight that mm. we have, have sold of yours is called Knot. Oh, yeah, the Knot. It's coming back. Um, it is coming back. Yeah. Great. Okay. Um, which is only honey. Right. It's uh, just honey. So, but my question there is, is you, you mentioned that it needs tannins to mm. make it happen. So what are you doing to, what's going on with that in right. those ingredients in the Knot? So the Knot, the knot we, the, we basically get the tannins from the wood. 
So, oh, okay. Yeah, so the knot, so for people who haven't had it, the knot is like one of our two flagship meads that um, we basically try and keep in production for the full year, but really it only lasts about six months. So, But it's going to come out again soon, I think, for the holidays. Um, and that's just wildflower honey wine, uh, wildflower honey. Um, so this is a deep, rich, late-season honey. It's quite bitter, actually, and it's, quite acidic. It's delicious. It, right, I so some of the bitterness is going to come right out of the honey. These these honeys that the uh, raise the roof, that's a early, that's the first honey out of the year. It's, huh. it's practically clear. It's not very bitter. Um, so we're, we're using that bitterness f- to help. And then uh, there's also pollen in there. There's all kinds of stuff in there. We're using well water from upstate. Uh, the water is really critical. Uh, and if it wasn't, I wouldn't be driving up there tomorrow to fill up a bunch of barrels and bring them back down to the winery. Uh, so we use this very super alkaline water. and then For uh, all the meads or just for the knot? Uh, for all the meads that aren't fruit-based, yeah. Uh, and then um, the we use... So uh, it's super alkaline water? It's Yeah, it's very alkaline. Uh, and I tried to use the New York water, but it's um, it's fine. It's fine, but it's not great. And you can taste it. Uh, you can taste the difference when you compare them. Um, and then, then the other thing is then we put them in uh, used red wine barrels. So we're going to get... They're neutral, right. uh, meaning so you're not going to get a big oak punch out of it. They're, they're basically neutral, but um, they still... They still release a little bit of tannin and stuff like that, and that and those combinations, also the microoxidation, and then also the um, the fact there's actually quite a bit. They're quite they're usually pretty oxidized, so there's quite a bit of uh, air. So then, Patrick, so with with the knot, th- that that mead, how would you serve it? I that that's one of my favorites. That's just left alone. Mm. I think it's it's fantastic on its own, like that. Uh, and a full a full pour, like how, I would, serving it. I I six I, ounce yes, pour. I would, I would pour eight ounce pour. A full glass of it. Yeah, five ounce, five ounce. You know, at honeys we do like a four or five ounce pour, like a wine glass. Um, you know, that's another thing. It's like uh, you know these these kind of short meads and stuff. You know, they're, they're half as strong, so people put them in beer glasses, but. You know, one of the reasons why it's so important to us to do a full 12% alcohol mead is because if you think about the way that mead might have been made for 10,000 years, you couldn't be making low alcohol meads. They just wouldn't keep. You know what I mean? It's sure. like it's, it's a modern, weird, it's like a weird kind of artifice of like refrigeration and sterility and things like that. that you can have these low alcohol wines. Otherwise, they'd, they'd go bad really fast. So, you know... I always thought it was the opposite. I thought that there, there would have been simple country wines that were like 9% that might have been on the verge of turning, might have mm. been slightly sour. Um, no, you know, people weren't stupid back then. You know, they, they, if it worked, they were very conservative about changing it because most things didn't work, right? So, uh, like... I love that line. People weren't stupid back <laughs> then. No, it's, I mean, it's really true. I mean, I think, I think the longer you do any of these things, you know, especially... Um, when you're making alcohol and you know that like there's nothing you're doing now that someone hasn't tried in the history of humanity already and then you you go to some place and and they'll make something in this weird way like why do they use this plant like what why why are they putting yarrow in it it's like why are they like is it just because it tastes good why why are they using the same plant across like 30 different cultures that have no contact with each other for the same thing you know what i mean whether it's for herbal medicine and for it's for a drink or whatever they're using it for, it's because you know they were smart and they, they figured out something that worked and and uh, that's why they do it and it, it often they, it doesn't necessarily mean they know exactly why from a scientific point of view why they're doing what they're doing but like 
you know, traditions that would like stir their wines with a stick and then they'd hang the stick on the ceiling and let it dry. And they'd always use that stick. You know, they don't have the, I, they didn't understand about yeast necessarily, but they knew that like, if you use this stick, the, the wine would start up faster, right? Um, and you know, that's, you know, that's the kind of thing where it's like, or maybe there's some like quality of the wood itself, right? That, that isolates certain yeast and not other yeast and kills off the bad ones, who knows? But uh, often they're very, they're very smart about things. And, um, you know, even the shape of these vessels that they use, like these, these wine bottles, I mean, they're shaped like this for a reason. You know, they have a little neck, cuts down on the airflow, this little bottom part, the punt, you know, that's round here. It's to collect yeast along the edge. And, you know, no one, no one mentions that to you at a wine shop, but um, you find out once you start making why they're shaped but, the way they and are. And Patrick, you're, you're going to, you're moving your store down the street in Greenpoint, but you're going to add wine as well. So... There's a lot of cool stuff that's going to happen with Duke's liquor box. Correct. Right? Correct. We're so um, we're going to take another short break. Just a quick note to our untapped guy, Ethan. We are drinking beer as well. We have Arrowwood, which is a brewery in Accord, New York, upstate. We're drinking their Porch, which is a rhubarb wild ale. Is that right, Dylan? Oh, wow. All right. Oh, so we are right. drinking a beer, the uh, Arrowwood Porch rhubarb wild ale. All right. So we're taking another short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, guys, it is New York Rye Week, and just so you can check it out, last year in November 2017, look up Beer Sessions Radio, episode 409. We did a really great uh, show called New York Grains and Rye, the backstory of the Empire Rye, and uh, we had a grain grower and some grains people as well as uh, several distillers. So that's a great one, episode 409, New York Grains and Rye, to learn more about Rye Week. Okay, here we are back with Mead. Okay, Rafia. So we're talking about cool things that can happen and, and you know, arcane things like why your bottle is <laughs> shaped this way. Right, right. Um, but you wanted me to go back to the, like, how, how we got to Honey's, like, from where. So when I met you, um, I was doing mostly what... Um, so, like, 2009, 2010. Yeah. So I was doing basically a subscription-based metery. So, like, the reason why I, when I went to Patrick's, I said, you can have this and you can have this, but you can't have these is because... I hadn't really been wholesaling. I pretty much had so an email like a list. club, like a CSA yeah, yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, it was, you know, we called it a community-supported alcohol. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it was... Sign I loved, me up, bro. I, yeah, I liked, you know, I loved CSAs. I loved the model of the consumer-producer relationship. You know, that, you know, there's a kind of trust involved. And the idea was I would make, you know, th- you know uh, about, you know, five or six meads over the course of the year. And I'd send you a box every three or four months of a few meads. And I'd have a you know, customer base, and that's what I was doing. And even today, we're still doing that. I just, um, we just released uh, the newest uh, CSA box. And what's cool about it now is that in the old days, that was pretty much the only way to get the meat. And then what, if I had a little bit left over, I'd sell it to Dukes, I'd sell it to, you know, Byburn Bell, I'd sell it to you. Um, now, you know, we have a healthy uh, wholesale, you know, thing. You know, we sell all over the city. We sell online. If you want any of these, you can get them on the internet at uh, Enlightenment Wines. I'll put them in a box for you. I mail them to you almost any place in the world. And um, 
but we're still doing the CSA. And what's cool about the CSA is that um, besides the fact that the members kind of get, you know, they get, uh, you know, discounts and things like that, and it's cheaper and all that. Um, they get they get a bottle of everything we make. So if we make like a really fancy little bottle and we only have like a hundred of them, the CSA members get them first. So, for example, uh, in this last release, about two years ago... So that's the inside track to getting all your product. Yeah, but also, like, the weird stuff that we don't sell at the bar, even. So, like, two years ago, we, Japanese television came to do an interview with me, and they were like, we want to watch you make a mead. Uh, it was NHK television, which is, like, the PBS of Japan, and I was on the equivalent of, like, Good Morning America, right? So it's, like, a three-minute spot. Um, and... We went upstate, and I picked a bunch of flowers. We picked some sumac, all this stuff, and then they made a little, little short, and I made a mead. But, you know, we couldn't drink it because it took, takes for a while. And two years later, I, I bottle it. I get, like, I don't know what we got. You know, not that much. Um, not enough, certainly, to wholesale it. Not enough even for the bar, but enough for the CSA members. So all the members get a bottle, and it's got a cool sticker on it and shows, like, the NHK, and they can watch the video clip and... Um, you know, that's that's sort of fun. Like when we did the, uh, you wanted me to mention that maple, we did a maple wine aged in uh, Tuttletown bourbon barrels for two or three years. And it was amazing. And I didn't really even, I didn't, I don't know what I was doing. You used maple syrup instead of honey? Yeah, exactly. So we ferment the maple <clears throat> syrup. Um, I put it in these bourbon barrels. I put it in the corner of the barn upstate and uh, I forgot about it. And then, you know, two years later, I'm cleaning up and I'm like, oh yeah, what's this? And, you know, I got 20 gallons of this amazing stuff, but not, not, not a huge volume. Again, for our CSA members, and then we'd sell a few extras. You know, I'm, I'm sucking down the razor roof, the sparkling Yeah, yeah that's right. That we should try the dandelion before the, the show's over, because it's your favorite. Let's I brought pop it for you. that. And then I want to yeah. um, just ask you again, defining this, I'm glad we're having this conversation, because like I said, to me, mead was always, whether it's like the Dungeon and Dragon, something sweet, or, or even something that the, the homebrewer would make for the first time. But you've you've elevated the game, and um, you know it, it, again, Patrick, at your shop, you know Duke's Liquor Box. Again, would you call these mead, or, or would you qualify it with with a, with another term? That's a good question. Uh, I don't want to call this the mead show. That's why we put it under like Rye Week and Spirits. Sure. Well, well, I think what Raphael said in the beginning of this was that. It, it, almost nobody knows what meat is yet. Everyone has opinion about it, mm-hmm. and when you when you when and and nobody can see these because we're on the radio. But the packages are gorgeous. The labels are beautiful. Uh, they're very unique. They're um, mysterious in a way where it draws if a customer is just browsing through our our, our bottles, they're drawn to it. And often it, the conversation starts with, "Well, what is this thing with this label that has no information on the front?" And we go, "Oh, well, this is mead, and it's produced this way." And then they say, "Mead? Oh, it's made from honey. It must be sweet." Well, no, it's not. And and we you know we get into the education of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I think, but to his point, like, and this is uh, you know a question for us too. It's like, uh, is it a fortified mead, wine? You know, there's other. Well, there's a legal description of it, right? That the government says, and it's you know they tend to be wines. They're they're honey wines. But practically speaking, they can taste. Ta- they can taste so like this dandelion wine's a digestif. It's going to taste nothing like the sparkling mead you had. Nothing like it. And maybe it shouldn't even be on the same place on the shelf, right? Sure. And so that's so where you're your, it, you're your own category. That's kind of what it is. It, it is, and and we we um, once 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 when, once we've got someone interested in, in in it as a category as a product, and 
um, and they're trying to decide between you know which one of these four should I buy. It's 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 you can't decide that way. They're all very different from each other, mm-hmm. you know. So it's more about well, what are you what what are you into? What, what you know? What's your flavor uh, profiles that you like and and this and that. And so that that's where we we lead with it and go with it. But we do group them together in one section. It's also I kind of feel like it's. It, I mean, this is sort of hard to describe exactly, but it's a, like a liminal. It's like a liminal drink, right? So. It often is between categories. You know, if like you know, in a world where Liminal. like you know, everything is gendered and you're it's like you're male, you're female, it's like, no, actually there's all this kind of range to human beings. And it's like the same is sort of true for what we're making. It's like there's a huge range to this stuff. And sometimes it's bitter and you sip it and you have a little glass, and sometimes it's big and it's sparkling and you have it in a big glass. And sometimes you eat it with dinner, sometimes you don't, sometimes you sip it on the porch. And there's everything in between. And I think that that means Every bottle you sort of have to uh, come to terms with on its own. It's not like there's a, um, like when you think about a beer and just like boom in your head, what's a beer? And it's like, okay, well, you have some idea and then you compare your beer that you're actually drinking against this sort of ideal version that you have in your head. If you have like, oh, you want a white wine, you want a Chardonnay, like here's the Chardonnay I made. You're going to compare the Chardonnay that you're drinking to some ideal version of Chardonnay. You can't really do that with what we're making and that's why we make it that way. You know, every bottle is unique. They're, they have their own collection of ingredients and, and techniques. You don't, you're your own category. Yeah, and so and every bottle, I think, really has its own thing to say. And um, that means you have, to, uh, you have to use your senses, actually, to, analy- to do the analysis. Like, what does it smell like? What does it taste like? Do they fit together? Is there some consistency? Does it tell a story? Um, you know, what's the finish like? Does it, does it make me want to have more? Quickly, All let's, let's just talk about you, you, from, you know, Making the wines mm-hmm. on the farm to having Honey's, the bar and mm. tasting room, in Williamsburg. Right. Quick. So, you know, I was doing the part-time thing, doing the CSA, um, but then feeling like I really needed to um, have a place in the city, and I wanted to bring in partners. I brought in my partner, Arlie Marks, who is the, uh, he set up the bar for Mission Chinese in the first edition over in the city, and is an old friend from Rhode Island, and is a chef and an interesting drink guy. And also Tony Rock, who um, sort of retired and, you know, helps us with understand, you know, he's kind of the business guy, um, helps us like organize our finances, keeps us from going out of business and, you know, keeps us like, you know, make sure we buy insurance and things like that and um, helps us, you know, with the big decisions. And that's the team, basically. And then we've got a bunch of uh, wonderful staff people, very talented people, and it's a little family. That's so you've we do got it. your showcasing your products. Are right. You, are you making product there, or is right? It just right. A so if you room? if you come to uh, Honey's, what you'll see is um, a bar, and next to the bar is the meadery. Right. So the meadery has all the barrels in it. We're fermenting stuff in there. You can take a tour. You know, it's a full full thing. We have a rooftop deck with a herb library and a garden, and then um, also of course Honey's, which is a cocktail bar. So we serve our own meads there. And we make cocktails with them, but then we also have a full line of beer and regular cocktails and whatever crazy thing Arlie's working on. And, and since uh, Patrick's going to be there Thursday making cocktails... Oh, and we're having a show on Thursday. So we're going to open up the winery. Uh, one of our bartenders is uh, raising money for her thesis show at Hunter. She's an artist. So um, there's going to be a bunch of art performances and music, and I think it's like five bucks. So stuff. But going yeah. back to their product, so what, what's what's your most popular or most interesting cocktail that you're making with your product? Oh. And then maybe Patrick's going to riff on that. Oh, I don't, you know, I don't even know. I feel like uh, my favorite cocktail they took off the menu last summer. 
<laughs> that sounds like it. the one I want to hear about. Which one is that? <laughs> well, we ran out of it. Uh, the St. Crimson uh, Negroni I loved uh, quite a bit. But, you know, yeah. the thing is, you know... So how, what, what did you make that with? Oh, God. Was it don't gin? ask me this. Don't ask me this. No, I, I don't know, actually. Um, I, I should have brought the menu with me. But um, we're doing uh, the Chris Knife right now with the dagger, which is really good, which I think is aged rye whiskey but don't hold me to it yes I, yes yeah, it is. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, my whiskey with the dagger meat. yeah yeah it's dagger, fantastic yeah that's really good um and uh we do i think a gimlet with this i don't know um it's always kind of changing that's the thing it's like it's not like we come up with a recipe and then that's all no we're done it's like every year when the new meat comes out but it's an extension new, of you like like yeah. the new yorker said Sort of, it's not Dungeons and Dragons. This is like dry, floral. There's we have a, we hope. have an, we have an incredible cocktail program. Opportunity. I, I think um, it tends to run dry. It tends to run with really really interesting and um, yeah. I mean, and you know, the whole liquor program is really excellent. Now the dandelion one, I've always liked this. I'm, it's something mm-hmm. that I'm glad you keep making. I know you mm-hmm. make small amounts. It's been one of my favorites for a long time. Patrick, what would you do with the dandelion wine? Because I I like it just as a sipper. It's it's mm-hmm. totally filling up my mouth with flavor. I don't have to drink too much of it. It's it, kind of coating my mouth. It's, sure, uh, and it, it's also nice and bitter at the finish. So it's um, it's I, I, I like it as a digestif or um, um, in in place of a heavy amaro or something like that because it's, and Danny Lyon's good for digestion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I like it like that a lot. Um, we do the brunch spritz. I mean, we don't do brunch, but you know, we've done uh, spritz with it before, which is really easy with is like lemon and honey and kava, sure. and you're done. Yeah. And it's like a wonderful thing to have that's like kind of healthy and, and you know, assertive. But, so instead uh, of one of those French elderflower things sure, you put yes. in this, this is an improvement already. It's not as sweet. Yeah. That is the other thing is the, the, the level of dryness of, of your your right. products, you know. Right. Well, it's, it's for two reasons. I think one is just uh, biologically, if you leave any honey in there, if, you have, if you're drinking sweet meat across the board anywhere, if you're drinking sweet wine more or less most of the time, you have to kill off the yeast somehow. You either have to filter it with a microfiltration so that there's nothing passes through, so you have a sterile wine, or you're gonna need to pasteurize it, or you're gonna need to sulfur it, or you're gonna, you know, you gotta do something. Um, otherwise, it's gonna continue to ferment in the bottle. So we have to make dry meads uh, so that they don't um, continue to ferment. The dandelion is the only exception to that. It has a little bit of residual sugar, and as a result, has a little bit of sulfites added to it um, to keep it from fermenting, but that's it. And then Pat, we're going to have to close out soon. But Patrick, give us a plug on Deuce Liquor Box. What's your philosophy? Because you said for a while you were the only wine liquor store in New York State that only served spirits. What's your philosophy behind it? Because you're a destination spot. Sure. I I, I guess the, 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 the really short uh, uh, mission statement or philosophy would be that we... we uh, we 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 look at what we're selling uh, not as a as an as a as an alcohol beverage within the industry. It's more of a food product, and and that was our 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 start from the very beginning. Was this is a food product? Why don't why shouldn't we know what's in it, who makes it, and where it's made? What the ingredients are, hmm. um, and and that was and that, of course that was just a, a natural fit for Raphael and and Enlightenment Wines and Duke's Liquor Box. Great. And then so I can also order through you in New York City online? Absolutely. Yes. At dukeslickerbox.com. Great. And we brought a couple more things. Just give a quick plug. Some of the products you brought in that you sell at Dukes. Sure. I, uh, I, I, I just thought we'd bring something quite interesting, uh, you know, being that it's, it's a 
it's, it's usually first and foremost a beer show. Uh, we just I brought in a, a beer distillate, which is a Aventinas Edelster, um, unaged. So it's essentially uh, it's it's a it's essentially just a a, a distilled beer, um, which. Uh, but isn't that what they call whiskey before they distill it? You're right, exactly <laughs> right, totally right. Uh, of course, you know as you, as you mentioned, we're dealing with the uh, the federal government in the United States, and they want to categorize everything. But it it is 100% a whiskey. Uh, it's made from grain, and it's fermented from grain, and then it's distilled. And if this was aged in a barrel, um, it would it would certainly qualify as a single malt whiskey. Mm. Um, in in the case of, of hops being involved, the federal government wants to call it a hop flavored whiskey in some instances. So there's guys in California. Uh, there's uh, there's even folks at uh, uh, it, at Arcane Distilling or now here in, in Brooklyn that are distilling a, a beer that Interboro. Yeah, David. Stills right. everybody's beers. And what's right, the second right. one you brought? And the second one is a, uh, it's an Italian uh, grappa produced by uh, a producer named Capovilla. Um, and uh, it, it's a grappa produced from mm-hmm. Amarone. Amarone is a, uh, typically... So it's a uh, wine distillate. It's a wine distillate. Well, Amarone is uh, a grape? Uh, Amarone is a uh, type, uh, it's almost more of a method. So Amarone actually means... Uh, I'm going to mess this up, but in Italian it translates to, I think, giant bitter or grand bitter. Mm. Uh, and, and so uh, the technique is uh, selecting grapes on a vine that are uh, somewhat uh, separated from each other so that they can lay them out on a straw mat, let them dry two weeks to, almost to raisins. four weeks, and they, it almost turns into and a it's raisin. Like the Valpolicella is the base wine. Exactly. Um, like and so when you make a wine from that, what's left over is the pomace, and, the, and if you can imagine... Making wine from almost a raisin has got to be really difficult. Mm. Taking the leftovers and making a grappa is even more difficult. Wow. So he does that, produces a grappa, macerates tobacco leaves into it. I want to try that. Filters out yeah, the tobacco leaves. <laughs> and then this but, is aged for five years. It's got some fact. color, too. And uh, we should totally try this. I just want to say, this is a what I expected, Raphael. Thank you so much, man. You're bringing in another outstanding industry guy, Patrick. Duke's Liquor Box. We're going to go over to Honey's. We're going to check it out. So happy that you got to come in. And uh, I won't put you on Mead Day. I'll just put you on Enlightenment Wines Day. Okay. Because <laughs> you're, you're, you are your own category, and I'm so proud of you. Really, you know, you're impressing us always. But uh, thanks so much again, and big shout-out to everybody, uh, producer Justin Kennedy, our new intern Dylan, uh, engineer uh, Matt Patterson, and I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo! Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.